Let's pray together as we prepare to look at this great passage. Heavenly Father, uh, please open the eyes of our hearts, open our spiritual eyes, open our spiritual ears so we can hear your word and obey it. Amen. So there's an assumption in our culture, particularly in Western culture, in Melbourne culture, that if you want to be for progress, you have to be against religion. The message is that the more secular a society is, the more it will be successful at combating the world's problems. Things like poverty, bigotry, injustice, violence. The solution to all of it is to give up on God and trust in ourselves, and trust in humanity and our capacity to change. It's seen that to be religious is to sign up to a set of outdated values and beliefs that have no real place in modern society. It's okay to have a faith, of course, that's, that's fine for you, but keep it personal, keep it private. It's kind of like a, a nice hobby. But it's no way to change the world. It's no way to see real progress happen. Now, I, I think we should have some sympathy here because... There's a lot wrong with the world. Evil, chaos, our news feeds are full of tragic stories. And as a culture, we, we cry out for a way to fix things for good. We long for a utopia on earth. And it's true, actually, that throughout history, religious people, even Christians, have at times acted rather than to heal, but instead to harm. But at the same time, it's important to realize for us and also in our conversations that when it comes to fixing the world's problems, actually no one has really had much success. History has seen the rise of many, 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 many reform movements, whether political or moral, whether kind of ground up, grassroots or top down reform. Many, many people throughout history have tried to fix things. And some have had some success for a little while, but nothing that's really lasted, nothing that's really brought about the kind of world that we long for. And even today, many place their hope in either on one side conservative or the other side progressive politics. And yet all that's really left us with is an increasingly divided society. Amongst all the leaders of history, Jesus stands alone in his unique vision for the world. His claim, which kind of sets him apart from everyone else, is not that we can fix the world, but actually that we can't. That the problem is too deep and evil is too powerful. You can't change the world, Jesus would say. In fact, you cannot even change yourself. So that's kind of a bit of a dreary message so far. Can we be optimistic? Is there anything to look forward to? Or is the future just a dystopian nightmare like we often see in cinema? Well, our passage in Luke today answers those questions. First of all, it's going to invite us into a belief that there is a real spiritual battle going on. It says you've got to believe there's a real spiritual battle. Secondly, it's, you've got to believe that it's a spiritual battle that you can participate in, that you can fight in on the side of good. And thirdly, that there is actually a battle within you 
that has to be won, fought and won first. So a spiritual battle, a battle that invites us to fight, and a battle within. First of all, let's look at, um, you've got to believe there's a spiritual battle. Uh, many people find this incredibly difficult to believe. We live in a post-enlightenment, scientific, rational world that has uh, modern science and medicine has explained the way much of what ancient people uh, attributed to spiritual causes. So people today really struggle to believe in things like demons, spirits, angels, ghosts, and for some even God. And that's because a few centuries ago, some philosophers got around and said to the world, you know what? We are living in a material world. And I'm a material girl. Maybe not the second bit, but the first bit, yes. They argued for materialism. Now, I don't mean like shopping, kind of obsessed with shoes and stuff or whatever, that that kind of materialism. Uh, uh, The philosophy of materialism says that the only thing that's real is what you can see and taste and touch. Whatever you can... uh, Sense with your senses, that's real. Everything else, not real. Materialism denies that there is a spiritual reality. Now that makes a huge difference on how you see life. If bad things happen, it's just natural. It's a necessary part of an environment. In the animal kingdom, if there's kind of violence and brutality, well, that's just the way it goes. And the same for the human world. If people act wickedly, then it must be just about faulty DNA, or maybe they weren't brought up well. But if all our problems can just be explained through science and psychology, then surely, with enough technology and enough therapy, we can fix the world. Makes sense, right? If, if the natural world is all there is, if it's just the material world, then surely with enough science, enough technology, enough progress, we can fix things. We can create this utopia. But nothing humans have tried in the history of progress has worked. And perhaps the reason is that the problem of evil is not actually just physical. Perhaps it's not so far-fetched, given all the tragedy and tyranny and terror, that there might be dark spiritual forces at work. Even an intelligent evil force that seeks to magnify and multiply wickedness. Jesus was absolutely convinced that this dark spiritual force was real and existed and was powerful. He believed in the existence of the devil. And actually, Luke's gospel is particularly interested in Jesus' fight against dark spiritual forces. Uh, If we kind of skip back to Luke chapter 4, we see that that's the account of Jesus being personally tempted by the devil. You know, Jesus goes down to the wilderness and the devil um, follows him out there and tempts him to... uh, uh, towards uh, riches and power um, and authority and to take shortcuts. But Jesus resists at every turn. Just a few verses later, uh, Jesus spells out what his ministry is going to be all about. Like Basically, as soon as he comes back in from the wilderness, he goes to a synagogue and he quotes from Isaiah 61, which we just heard before, but it's in Luke 4. 
So Luke 4, this is what Jesus read from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This mission statement is not just about healing and restoring the physical problems of the world, but the spiritual powers behind them. He came to, uh, Luke says, set the oppressed free. Free from what? Free from literal prisons? Well, not often, no. What he's talking about is freedom from bondage to dark spiritual forces whose weapons are destruction, despair, disease, and death. Jesus not only believes in the devil and demons, but actually spends a significant part of his ministry attacking them front on. And there's a point to this. Apart from restoring people who were demon-possessed, there's a, a, a literal and physical restoration there, but there's a bigger point to it as well. And that is that these exorcisms are kind of like visual representations, visual aids to help us understand what Jesus is actually come to do. What he's come to do. That Jesus is setting up a new power greater than the darkness. That his light is going to drive out dark forces. That his goal is to defeat Satan and all that Satan stands for. One of these demonstrations is in Luke 11, which we just heard read. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Now, someone will say at this point, well, yeah, Pete, I get that. But people back then thought that demons were behind everything. If there was a problem or there was someone was sick, you know, you had some, like, acne, it was a demon. Demon was the problem. Just cast it out and you'll be right. Jesus and others of his day and age were just a bit naive. They didn't understand modern medicine. They didn't understand what was really going on. But actually, I don't think Jesus was naive at all. Because in plenty of occasions, Jesus healed people without any mention of demons or spiritual forces. Some were sick, they just got healed. But only occasionally, actually, Jesus attributed the problem to a spiritual um, source. Sometimes there was something dark at work. Jesus identified that in this particular time. Now, the people watching on were amazed. They could not doubt the miracle. It happened before their eyes. There was no doubt there. So instead, what they doubted was not the miracle itself, but how Jesus was able to do it. People said he must be possessed. Possessed not just by any old demon, but by Beelzebul, literally Lord of the Flies, which is kind of like a shorthand slang for the devil. Now, Jesus kind of points out how ridiculous this is. First of all, why would Satan drive out himself? Like, I don't know if you've ever played like team sport, but if half the team decides to try to go for an own goal, like that's not really very helpful to the match. Satan is not, very, is not foolish. <laughs> He's not dumb. 
Why would he do that? It doesn't make sense. Second, if Jesus is casting out demons with demonic power, then the Jewish uh, leaders of the day would have to ask, well, what about their exorcists? They were, there's plenty of uh, historical evidence that other people were doing exorcisms. Well, what power are they using? How do you know it's not the same power? <laughs> Who's to say they aren't in league with the devil as well? So Jesus forces us to see only one real possibility. If demons are fleeing at the mere word of Jesus, then God's power must be at work in a new and special way. There has been a tectonic shift in spiritual reality. For so long, Satan has considered the world kind of like his castle. In verse 21, when talks about the strong man guarding his house. The literal word there is castle or palace. Satan's been king of the castle. He's been at home in his, in his own domain. But someone stronger than him has now kicked down the gate and brought the devil to his knees. Jesus is setting himself up on the throne of the world. And the powers of evil have no choice but to either kneel or flee. Verse 22 also talks about um, uh, the stronger person attacks, overpowers him, takes away the armor in which the man trusts, and divides up his plunder. What's the plunder that Jesus divides up? Well, it's what he gives to those who are set free with him. When he sets captives free, it's not just like, go off on your own, but he says, now come into my kingdom and uh, experience the benefits of my victory. A life freed from the darkness of sin and the inevitability of death. And more than that, a promise that eventually Satan will be done away with entirely for good, along with all his forces. The hope of a final end to evil in all its forms. So Jesus uh, forces us to ask ourselves, who is this man who banishes the darkness? If he is able to change lives with just a word, surely he is one who can be trusted to bring all evil to an end. Jesus demonstrates his power over darkness so as to call people to see him as the one and only one who can win the spiritual battle for the soul of the world. And if we believe that, the next step then is to find out how we can be Involved. How can we join the battle? If you go into the offices of the MCG to this day, you'll see uh, this photo up on the wall. It's a panoramic uh, photo of the MCG packed with 130,000 people. There's never been more people in the MCG since. Uh, the event was the 1959 rally of the American evangelist Billy Graham. He was uh, on a national preaching tour and he stopped in Melbourne. Uh, and on that tour nationally, uh, 3.25 million Australians came to hear him. Incredible. Over 100,000 people became Christians. And that legacy is still felt today. Uh, uh, but at the time, uh, well, uh, since then, a number of researchers have kind of looked back at those years around that rally to see, well, was there any effect other than you know, people going to uh, hear a guy preach? Well, actually, there's uh, some really interesting statistics Crime rates dropped significantly the year after that tour in Melbourne and Sydney. 
Stories were told of burglars handing in their burglary kits to judges. Thugs were giving up their guns. And even alcohol consumption, which every year since 1950 had gone up every year, in 1960 it actually went down. Now, it then went back up again. I should point that out. But for a year, the, the trend was reversed. The Graham Crusade was this moment in history, in our history, when God's power was manifested against darkness and evil in a real and tangible way. A blow was struck against the corruption of society. These times of particular spiritual renewal help remind us of something that's easily forgotten. That Christianity is not just 10 rules for life. Not kind of a life hack about how you can get a bit more meaning and purpose. It's not a BuzzFeed article. It's not a self-help scheme to kind of try and figure out what life is all about. It's not like the religious version of I Quit Sugar. It's not kind of, and because it's not the religious version of I Quit Sugar, it's not that it can be kind of good for some, but kind of not good for others, you know. Pick it if you choose. Because to be a Christian is to be drawn into a story that spans history from beginning to end. It's to join ranks in a cosmic battle between good and evil and become a key player in God's plan to fix everything. That means that a church community that gets this will be a thorn in Satan's side. A bunch of Jesus followers, chock full of prayer and the Holy Spirit, who go out their doors each morning ready for battle. A people who know the battle isn't against other humans, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual realities of this world. It's to be against Satan, all he stands for, to be against the ravages of sin, disease, hopelessness, and death. Later in the New Testament, Paul says that the only real weapon that a Christian has uh, is this book. Why? Because it points to Jesus. Because it says, look, this is the one who has defeated death, in whom there is hope, who will bring an end to disease, who forgives sin. It doesn't seem much like much, these words. And yet, when uh, Jesus himself was tempted by the devil, what did he respond with? He just quoted scripture. Because even Jesus knew, the word of God made flesh knew that here is where the power lies. The Bible is a sword that dissolves the power of the evil one and cuts through the chains of captives. In 1959, God used Billy Graham to make a dent in history, but I think even more powerful, but also more invisible, is when God uses everyday Christians, even the weakest among us, to stand firm in faith, to be mouthpieces for truth and justice and to be advocates for the poor, for the marginalized, and to proclaim Jesus to the world, point people to him, to his love and kindness, his generosity and grace. So whatever you think about Christianity, by its own definition, it can't just be personal preference. Because to follow on Jesus' road is to make a choice and pick a side. 
And because of that, in verse 23, Jesus makes one of the most uncomfortably black and white statements in the whole Bible. Verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You know, in the Matrix, uh, when Morpheus gives Neo the choice between the red, blue and the, uh, the red pill and the blue pill, you know, take the, the, the blue pill and you join the fight, join the rebellion against the machines and all that stuff. Take the red pill, knocked out, wake up in bed the next day, go on with your life. No issue. Jesus doesn't give us that kind of choice, actually. He doesn't give you the red pill. He doesn't say you can just not worry about it. He says, actually, you are either for him or against him. You have to pick a side. There's no neutral option. To stand with Jesus is to stand against the power of evil. Every Christian then is called into battle against spiritual powers. But what about to stand against Jesus, to reject him? The implication must be that that is to be on the side of darkness. Now at this point, uh, most people have some real objections. And you can understand why. What an offensive idea. That just because I'm not a Christian, then I must be on the side of the devil. That's a pretty hard thing to stomach. I admit it. I agree. (laughs) Sounds ridiculous. But let's think about it a bit more. I'll try and use an illustration. Um, I've been watching a bit of James Bond movies, so forgive me for this illustration. Uh, Imagine an evil mad scientist (laughs) holed up in his lair. Uh, And one day the hero arrives... Not James Bond, another hero. Uh, And he infiltrates, or she, infiltrates the the cave, the castle, or the submarine, or the volcano. Take your pick of mad scientist lairs. Uh, And this hero infiltrates the the lair, and he gets to know uh, the bad guy's staff. You know, the the people who work for the bad guy. And he reveals his, he he gets one and befriends this person, and uh, reveals his plan to this guy, and asks him to join the fight to overthrow the mad scientist. But the guy's like, nah, I'll be fine. I'm just a janitor. Like, I don't really get involved with the whole evil henchman thing. I'm just a janitor. I just sweep around the shark pit. I just kind of grease the hinges on the trap doors. That's, that's all I do. I'm not really involved. So the hero goes, okay, fair enough. And so it goes on and defeats the bad guy and the, the police arrive and the choppers and they arrest the mad scientists and all the henchmen, and they arrest the janitor. And we would ask, well, would it be okay for the janitor to go free? I think we'd say, well, no. We'd say he's still guilty, actually. Because even though he might have swept the floors, he was still complicit and involved in the organization. He was part of the hierarchy. He went along with it. He couldn't actually stay neutral. It's a silly illustration, but maybe it gets something to the heart of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying if people do not belong to God, then they are still pawns, if unwitting pawns, of evil. And though many people would claim to be good at heart, actually when we think about it, we're all complicit. We all add to the maelstrom of greed, envy, lust, and selfish pride. We may not be evil dictators or mad scientists, but we aren't innocent either. 
So if Jesus' words are true, then to reject Jesus is to accept all that Jesus stands against. If you're not for him, you're against him. As my boss uh, John said while we were looking at this passage last week, you can't sit on the fence because because Satan owns the fence. You can't sit on the fence because Satan owns the fence. And this poses a problem for all those who want to be on the right side of history, the side of doing what is right, good, true, and just. Because according to Jesus, the only way to be on the right side of history is to be on the right side of Jesus. So a question remains, if we're all complicit in evil, then how can we have any hope of changing sides? Well, right at the end of this passage is this strange little parable. It's very odd. It kind of sticks out. It doesn't really make sense. It's, it's, but it's actually the key to the whole thing. It means that to join the battle against evil out there, first of all, the battle against evil in here must be won. To join the battle out there, the battle in your own heart first has to be won. Let's look at this little story. It's in verse 24. Uh, A dark spirit leaves a person and kind of goes out into the desert, wanders around for a bit. And then after a while, it doesn't really find a place to rest, so it goes back to its original home in this person. And when he gets there, he finds that the original host has got their life together. The house is swept. It's all in order. The furniture's all arranged. The bathrooms are clean. It's a nice place to live now. And the the demon goes, fantastic, man, this is a great Airbnb. We'll we'll just move back in. And hey, I've got seven other buddies, actually, who would love this kind of a place. So they're going to come in too. And so Jesus says, actually, the guy's uh, uh, situation is worse than before. What's going on? It's a weird parable. Well, I think the story illustrates the futility of trying to be against evil, but while not also being for Jesus. He says, it's futile. You can't do it. It's impossible. Here's why. The first part of the story is about someone experiencing life transformation. And Jesus actually assumes that there's lots of ways to fix earthly problems. There's lots of different ways. Christians don't have a monopoly on life change. Um, In many ways, other religions, philosophies, and programs can work. They actually make a difference. If you quit sugar, it will probably make your life slightly better. (laughs) It's true. Uh, Let's take, for example, alcoholism. That's a a real problem in society, right? And for many years, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, has been very successful helping countless people overcome addiction. So a person can go into AA and after months or years, you know, gain some control over that particular problem. And that is a good thing. It's good for society. It's kind of like the demon of alcoholism uh, gets cast out, it's left, leaves. They get their life together. You hear about this all the time, people who get their lives together. But this is where Jesus' warning comes in. Jesus is saying that you can deal with your problems, sure, but unless you deal with the spiritual reality underneath the problem, then you will end up worse than how you started. Even if you get your life together, there will be a deeper spiritual reality that remains corrupt 
and remains broken that has yet to be fixed. So, for example, and it might be that an alcoholic does get their life together and stops drinking, but something deep within them, maybe a, 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 some fear or some pain that alcohol used to numb, they simply find another substitute. So they throw themselves into work, or they throw themselves into getting fit, or healthy living, or into a relationship. And they find that actually this new thing numbs the pain and fear that alcohol used to do. Now, you might say, well, surely that's better. And in a way, it is. It's, I think probably being a fitness junkie is probably better than being an alcoholic. I totally agree. But on a spiritual level, actually what's happened to make things worse than before is that they have become more uh, confident in their own ability to fix their problem, to drive out evil. And it might be that they become possessed with pride in their own achievements. It worked. I fixed myself. I'm done. And Jesus is saying that that is a trap because the underlying issue will not have been solved. Put another way, you can go out and campaign on the side of good and do everything you can to defeat evil, become an activist, become a politician, become a, start a charity, whatever you want to do. But unless evil can be permanently dealt with in your own heart, then you yourself will end up being complicit in the very thing you despise. And you'll be worse off because you'll be all the more convinced of your own righteousness. The only way we can truly be on the side of progress is if we first experience true heart transformation. It's not enough to just get your life in order, even if you could do such a thing. Our hearts have to be possessed by something that truly fulfills our longings and defeats our personal evil. Not just to have our hearts swept clean, but actually to have someone move in and take residence. To be a Christian is to have Jesus come and make his home in you. To justify and purify you from the inside out and to give you an armor against your own inclinations. He and only he can win the battle against our own evil and so empower us to join his battle. Only he can help us fight the battle without actually fighting him. How does it happen? What well, happens by believing in what Jesus has done for you? The gospel that Christians believe is that Jesus lost the battle against evil, so that in the end, we along with him might win it. That he allowed the full weight of human sin and the full strength of Satan to bring him down to death on a cross. That he was left hanging by nails in desolation. And what looked like defeat was actually victory. Because his blood forgave our complicity with evil and his resurrection took away the power of the devil, which is death. So to believe in the gospel is to have the risen Christ come and take residence in you by his Holy Spirit and to experience a power not your own and to fight a battle that could not otherwise be won. So I don't know how you're feeling this morning, 
It might be that you're despondent because you're looking out into the world and there's all sorts of evil and wickedness, so much that is wrong and it weighs heavily on your soul. Or it might be that you're despairing, not because of the battle out there, but because of the battle that rages within. Because sometimes sin and the devil seem to have an upper hand in your life. And it might seem in those moments that Jesus' kingdom is pretty weak and ineffective, not able to do much against our problems. But if we are for Jesus, there is every reason to be full of cheerful optimism, even when faced with real evil. Because behind the physical reality, behind what things often seem like, there is a spiritual truth that Satan's power is broken by the cross and by the empty tomb. And because of that, there is a promise that evil will soon be at an end. That God's kingdom, even though it might be invisible now, kind of sitting behind the veil of what's going on in the world, even though the church might seem weak and ineffectual in its mission, but one day God's promise is that his kingdom will no longer be invisible but truly visible, revealed in glory for all to see. And when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns in power, all be right again. In the meantime, we can trust in him and go out forewarned that there is a spiritual battle and forearmed with the word of God, belief in the gospel, to see the tide of evil start to turn in our lives, in our community, in the world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the power that's in the gospel of Jesus, that on the cross we see the spiritual powers of evil revealed for what they are, so weak, so defeated, so powerless before Jesus, the King of the world. We thank you that the devil, the strong man, has been defeated, that he has been kicked out. And even though his power is still there and he's still able to lie and bring us and try and convince us that we are powerless to solve anything, we know that your word convinces us of the truth that Jesus has, that in him he has made uh, his home in us. And we are being changed and transformed on the inside out and being sent into this world, though devils and wolves surround, to make a real difference. To see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Send us out, Father, into the battle. Give us all we need for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.